Helen Marr Kimball was the daughter of Heber C. Kimball and Vilate Kimball. As she publishes these articles and pamphlets and does this writing to defend plural marriage, she has this unique perspective and really powerful perspective as a firsthand participant, a firsthand observer about what she understands and has experienced to be the truth of plural marriage. Hello, and welcome to Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Today, we're going to be talking about chapter 34, Nothing to Fear from the Wicked. And to discuss this chapter with us today, we're so excited to welcome Lisa Olson-Tate. She's the general editor of Saints Volume 2, and we're so excited to have her back. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thanks. Lisa, in today's episode, this is like a power-packed chapter. We, we <laughs> yeah. th There's so much going on. We're going to try to divide it up into a few experiences with different people. Let's start with Ida Udall. Can you just sort of remind us who is Ida? What's her relationship to maybe people we've met previously in the book? And what is her experience right now? Yeah, so Ida Hunt, as you may recall, is the granddaughter of Loisa Barnes Pratt, who was one of our characters in the early chapters of the book that we show coming across the plains. And so there's this lovely connection then that takes it into succeeding generations. Ida made a momentous decision to marry a man named David Udall in Arizona as a plural wife, his second wife. Right. And so now in this chapter, we're watching as the consequences of that choice really take hold. The day that she married him, she wrote in her journal about how it was such a momentous decision to enter into plural marriage at this time. And we see that that turns out to be true. So there's a, a whole bunch of these families, plural families, that the men are being prosecuted. David, her husband, is arrested, but he gets off. They can't find a witness, largely because Ida is in hiding and others. But then they get him on another charge anyway. What's that about? Yeah, at first he's charged with perjury, likely for denying plural marriage. I don't know for sure exactly what the basis for that charge was. And he gets off of that charge, but then there's still question about whether he is yet going to be charged with what they called unlawful cohabitation, which was how they went after men for practicing plural marriage. It's kind of heartbreaking to me just to put her whole story together. So here she is. She's in the underground. Her husband is arrested. He's been arrested. And she's pregnant and due with her first child. And so tell us what else is life like for her? Where is she staying? Where where does she go? What does she do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, it even says in the book there's days that she doesn't even go outside. Like she's yeah. literally in hiding. Yeah, and that was true for a lot of women and a lot of men during this period where they couldn't show themselves. They were in danger all the time. And so Ida's story really captures that. It's representative. It's her own experience. It really happened, but it's also representative of the experience of many, many other men and women at this time. She winds up, I think, in Nephi in Utah living with her in-laws and I believe that's where she gives birth to her daughter, Pauline. So again, here she's having her first baby, and her husband can't be with her. So she has this baby on her own, and she feels that that's a great comfort to her, but she's also constantly reminded of the fact that he's not there. They can't be together. At one point, he writes letters, but he can't even refer to her by name. 
So it's a poignant story. I thought it was particularly poignant, this quote from the book, where she says, I was blessed with a dear little daughter of my very own, she wrote in her journal. I thanked God that I now had something to live and labor for. It just kind of gives you a sense of how desperate, how depressed, I, I don't know what the words are, just how difficult this was and how much joy she felt in having this little daughter that she could care for and and gave her a reason to keep on going. You can imagine that in the midst of this uncertainty and fear and disruption in her life that that would have been a bright spot, a joy to her, just like it is to all of us, right? When we have our babies, it's a joyous thing. But in this case, that joy was really needed in the midst of all the other difficulties that she was experiencing. Including the death of her mom. Including the death of her mom. Her mom died, I think, a few hours before she gave birth to her baby. Yeah, very suddenly. And again, that would be another reminder of the freedom she doesn't have. She can't go to the funeral, which probably she couldn't have made it there in time anyway, given transportation at the time. But she can't mourn with her family. Yeah, yeah. it's something she has to endure in private and in hiding. Well, another part of the story in this chapter is Sagwitch, the leader of the northern band of the Shoshone tribe. Our listeners, if you didn't get to it, you've got to listen to episode 27, where we had the current chairman of the northern band of the Shoshone tribe, Darren Perry, as well as Scott Christensen on the podcast to talk about this in depth. But this was one of those moments of great joy, for me anyway, in reading this book when Sagwitch and his people go to the temple after working so hard on it, and they take the names of those that were killed at Bear River, and they do the temple work for them in Logan. So let's listen to just a little clip here from the book that kind of celebrates this. On the day of the massacre, Sagwitch had not been able to stop the soldiers from killing his people. But in the spring of 1885, he and other Shoshones spent four days in the temple, performing ordinances on behalf of their deceased relatives, including many who had been killed at Bear River. Yeah, this is another really poignant moment in the chapter for me. And I really reflected on how do you calculate and weigh in the balance all the experiences that these people had. Yes, it makes us happy. It makes us feel good to see them going to the temple and doing this work. And I think that that's eternally significant. But the experiences, the suffering that they had been through, and in some ways it represents Native American experience generally at this time. So for me, it was just a really mixed thing. And perhaps the beauty and the joy of it is heightened because of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow behind it. It really is. So another person that we read about in this chapter, we mentioned it being kind of a whirlwind (laughs) chapter with so many people, but we read that Joseph Smith III comes to Utah. So at this point, he is a leader in the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What brings him to Utah? We've shown before that these sons of Joseph Smith are coming to Utah among the Latter-day Saints to try to win converts to the reorganized church. And one of the fundamental bases of their beliefs and of their message is that Joseph Smith did not 
teach or practice plural marriage, that this was something Brigham Young implemented after Joseph Smith's death. And of course, there are many, many people in Utah who know that that's not true. And so this creates a situation where people who had knowledge and experience of the early years of plural marriage start to speak out in ways that hadn't happened in the earlier time. Because plural marriage in Nauvoo was introduced confidentially and people who were involved in it did not feel at liberty or didn't really have a lot of desire to talk about it in detail. But now because of the circumstances these decades later, it becomes necessary and desirable for them to speak up. And one of these people is Helen Whitney. So Lisa, will you tell us more about Helen Whitney? What's her story and what is her role in talking about polygamy at this time? Yes. Helen Marr Kimball was the daughter of Heber C. Kimball and Valate Kimball. She was born in 1828, so she's in her teens in the Nauvoo years. And by this time in Utah, she has raised a family. She was married to a man named Horace Whitney, who was the son of Newell K. Whitney and Elizabeth Ann Whitney. And they had many children together. And then Horace had plural wives and had a large family, particularly with one of his plural wives. So Helen has experienced plural marriage in a variety of contexts. And the one that we talk about here in the book is her own experience of having been sealed to Joseph Smith when she was young. She was 14 at the time in Nauvoo. And so as she publishes these articles and pamphlets and does this writing to defend plural marriage, she has this unique perspective and really powerful perspective as a firsthand participant, a firsthand observer about what she understands and has experienced to be the truth of plural marriage. And so what are her perspectives? I mean, what do we know based on the documentary evidence, the the historical documents from the period, what do we know about her sealing to the prophet Joseph Smith and her experience in those early days of plural marriage versus maybe what her experiences with Horace Whitney were here in Utah? She wrote a lot defending the practice of plural marriage. She still didn't write a whole lot about her own experience. And so... As with so many other, really virtually all of the other women and participants in early plural marriage, and especially those sealed to Joseph Smith, we just don't have a lot of firsthand accounts, just don't have a lot of reflective, personal information in the way that we modern people would like to have. At one point when she began writing about plural marriage, she said, A feeling of delicacy takes possession of the author in attempting to perform a labor of this nature. So she expresses that this is a delicate matter and something that she is going to treat carefully. From what we do know, it makes the most sense to understand her sealing to Joseph Smith as part of the really early unfolding of the understanding of sealing, of what it meant and what it was doing. And as first-generation Latter-day Saints at the time, 
they weren't entirely sure about being sealed to dead ancestors. They didn't know if they'd accepted the gospel. And so they felt that it was important for them to be connected to a faithful priesthood holder ultimately as part of being sealed. And this is why so many were sealed to Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, to other leading brethren. They also thought about sealing as creating what we might call a kinship network or thinking about it kind of laterally in all of us as Latter-day Saints being sealed to each other, being sealed in this network of people. And so in that context, for the daughter of Heber C. Kimball to be sealed to Joseph Smith was a way of connecting those families. And that seems to be the way that Helen understood it herself at the time, seems to be the way that she recalled her father explaining it to her that this was something that would connect their families. Now, as it says in the chapter here, you know, she was very young at the time. It was only about a year before Joseph Smith died. And her sealing to him seems to have been one of those sealings for eternity that didn't involve a full marriage relationship. But this, again, was part of that unfolding understanding of sealing at the time. We really appreciate the perspective that you're bringing because this is a difficult topic. It's hard for us to understand, you know, coming from the perspective that we have today. When we read a lot of these stories and hear about these experiences, it can be troublesome to us. And so having these stories where we can have a little bit of insight into their experience and just giving context to it is really valuable. I think one of the most helpful things is if we can try to understand what they understood. If we can try to see it from their perspective and what they understood. Again, our understanding of that is fairly limited, but these little glimpses that we get are helpful. And I think we also have to cultivate an ability to hold different views and feelings at the same time, because there's no question that examples like Helen Kimball being sealed to Joseph Smith at 14, and especially the way we understand sealing now with marriage, and we know that that was the case with some of the other sealings, many of those are uncomfortable to us, and they don't work well with our modern sensibilities and understandings. And I think it's okay to say that, to acknowledge that. At the same time, we can recognize that they believed that they were following commandments from God, that they believed they were following revelation. That was how they understood what they were doing. And as Helen herself said, she said, what other motive than real faith and firm conviction of the truth of this principle could have induced them, meaning women, to accept and practice a doctrine so opposite to their traditions? So however we look at it today is one thing, but I think we also have to give them the respect of understanding that they were acting on faith according to the understanding that they had at the time. And maybe that's as much of a reconciliation of those feelings as we're going to get in this life. We just don't have enough to understand it completely. Lisa, a moment ago, you mentioned other ceilings. Can you help us understand what were the different kinds of ceilings or marriage relationships that we believe from the documentary evidence happened with Joseph Smith? Some of them we know are like this situation with Helen Mark Kimball, where it appears to be a ceiling only. Was that the case with all of them, or were there other kinds of ceilings with Joseph Smith? Yeah, that's an important distinction to understand. And I would just point out that in the Gospel Topics essay on plural marriage in Nauvoo, This is laid out very clearly. But yeah, there seems to have been some ceilings that were considered for eternity only. 
meaning that it didn't involve a marriage relationship in this life, meaning sexual relations, children living together, those kinds of things, but that that was a relationship that would take effect in the next life. Okay. And then there were marriage ceilings in the sense that we understand it today, a ceiling for time and eternity that was a full marriage that included children and, and all the relationships that come with that. And then there were some that seemed to be for this life only. Okay, so one more question here concerning this situation with Joseph III coming out. There's another witness to all these marriages, someone who participated in them that has direct knowledge. She was there. She selected some of the wives. I don't understand how Joseph III wouldn't have been taught or explained by his own mother, yes, this is what happened. Yeah. Emma is always a big question mark when it comes to understanding early plural marriage. As we've talked about before, we have almost no firsthand source material from Emma. And so we simply don't know her perspective. We don't know what she knew, when she knew it. We don't know what her discussions with Joseph were or weren't. We know she struggled with it. We know it was a factor in her staying behind when the saints came west. But we just simply don't know a lot more than that. In later years, it appears that if she didn't actively teach her sons that Joseph did not practice polar marriage, she at least allowed them to believe that and allowed other people to say that. And there are some published denials of Emma that date to these later years where she seems to deny Joseph practicing plural marriage and so forth. Historians who've looked at those carefully feel that she was choosing her words very carefully, that they're very carefully worded denials. But with Emma, we just don't know enough. Again, it's another big question mark that we wish we knew more about. And in the absence of that, all we can do is leave it between her and Joseph and the Lord. Well, speaking of that, there's a beautiful thing here, I think, anyway, with Helen's um, experience. She's been married to this man, Horace Whitney, and they've spent their whole life together. They have children, and she has to be wondering, what is this like? Because I was sealed to the prophet Joseph. And I think this is not an uncommon thing, right? There are people today who, because of an illness or a divorce or other situations where they're left wondering, what happens to my ceiling? And I just wanted to play this one little clip from Helen, which I think is a beautiful perspective that we can gain something from today. Though Helen spent most of her life married to Horace, she knew she had been sealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. How her relationships would work themselves out in the hereafter was not always clear to her but she intended to claim all the eternal blessings God had promised her family. God had always brought her through the furnace of affliction, and she continued to trust that he would make things right in the end. I have long since learned to leave all with him, who knoweth better than ourselves what will make us happy, she wrote. Isn't that an awesome perspective that it's not easy, right? Like, that's not an easy thing to take on, but that's a healthy good perspective to say, we don't know how this works out, but we got to trust in the Lord. And know that what he's going to do will make us happy because that's what he wants for us. And won't violate our agency or our desires. 
that all of those things are part of the calculation. And, you know, her story just demonstrates something that's true throughout history, both in the church and out of the church, which is that marriage and family relationships are messy. They're complicated. This ideal we have of a nuclear family with a few kids and mom and dad and so forth is beautiful and great. And it's also not, if you look statistically in history, been the overwhelming norm. We believe that there is something real and powerful about sealing these relationships together. Beyond that, we just have to trust in the Lord. It matters what we believe about God in this situation. Well, talk about complicated. Sousa Young Gates is headed to Hawaii. She has her son at the train station, and her ex-husband shows up with a court order and takes her son. Yeah. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. When Sousa and Alma were originally divorced in 1878, the judge did grant custody of both children to Alma. That was the common practice at the time, that custody laws favored the father. Children would go at least legally with the father. Bailey was only two years old at the time. And I think there was some sense that there was some kind of fairness in saying, well, he gets one of the children and she gets the other. I mean, that's hard for us to accept. And it was really hard for Sousa to accept. She never did accept it, really. So Bailey, this little boy, has lived with Sousa and with Jacob for virtually his whole life. Jacob's really the only father he knows. It's not like he's had weekends with his dad. He doesn't really even know his own father. And so that adds to the trauma of the situation as this 10-year-old boy is literally ripped away from the only family he knows on the basis of this court order. And they did not have time to work this all out because no. Sousa and Jacob were going on a mission to Hawaii. They found out a week before that the family could even go with Jacob. And so here they are scrambling, trying to get ready to move their family and, you know, try and connect with Alma to figure out, yeah. you know, if Bailey can go. And it's just... To their credit, they did at least let him know, you know, they could have just gone out Skipped of town without yeah. telling him, but they wanted to do things the right way. Sousa did consult with one of her brothers who was an attorney in Salt Lake when this happened. And besides the fact that they didn't have time, he also advised her that it didn't matter. There was wow. nothing she could do because of that custody order. So it started off their mission in a really, really difficult way. And Sousa spends most of the time on the ship traveling to the Sandwich Islands in her bunk, just sick. And she's pregnant at the time. And in other sources that I've seen with her, she doesn't travel well. Sailing is always hard for her. She gets really motion sick, seasick, as they called it at the time. And so that was going to happen anyway. But then this layer of heartbreak on top of that, you can just imagine, I would get in bed and put the covers over my head and I wouldn't want to come out mm -hmm. after something like this. And we think of Hawaii, uh, you know, we think of a cool tropical drink on a beautiful beach, right? That is not what Sousa describes in this book. She describes her companions. Maybe you can read us the little clip here of all of her wonderful friends she has on the island. 
I just like this insight into her humor. Like, I feel like she's looking at this optimistically because this is what she says. If I feel it all lonely, I have plenty of company in mice, rats, scorpions, centipedes, cockroaches, fleas, mosquitoes, lizards, and millions of ants. (laughs) (laughs) That's characteristic of Sousa. She has this wonderful sense of humor and a way of really turning a phrase. And... Those of us who've been to Hawaii in context other than visiting the beach know that this is true. (laughs) So I was surprised when they get to Hawaii, they see Joseph F. Smith. He's living there and he's in exile to avoid arrest. So I didn't realize that he had gone all the way to Hawaii because we're seeing this in Salt Lake too, that many leaders of the church are underground to avoid charges against their plural marriage. Yeah, one thing this chapter really shows is how all the way up to the first presidency, the raid disrupts the functioning of the church. The first presidency isn't able to meet together. They're trying to conduct their business by letter because they are having to hide and avoid prosecution. Joseph F. Smith was particularly wanted because of all the firsthand knowledge that he had of plural marriages and because of his position in the first presidency. Then, of course, as we've seen earlier in the book, he had served in Hawaii and knew the language, loved a lot of the people there. And so maybe it just made sense to send him on another mission to the Sandwich Islands for his own safety. And he went with one of his wives, Julina, who was considered his first wife at the time. Well, we also have Lorenzo Snow, who is 71 years old. He's living with just one of his wives, but he's arrested anyway. And the judge demands that he divorce the other wives. Yeah. And I love this quote from Lorenzo Snow. He says, I would prefer to die a thousand deaths than renounce my wives and violate these sacred obligations. So he's off to jail. And then we end this chapter with George Q. Cannon. And this is just one of those scenes that fact is better than fiction. (laughs) This is as good as any movie you've ever seen. Can you just remind our listeners what's happening to George as he's coming back on the train? Yeah, I'm so glad that we've featured George Q. Cannon in this volume. He's such a wonderful person and a great leader, and I hope that people who read the book will be interested to go and find out more about him. We've published his journals online at the Church Historian's Press, and so you can go and read his own words and his own accounts of things, and he was just a great person and a great leader. So I love how he refers to these marshals as a pack of human bloodhounds. <laughs> and so he he's counseled with President Taylor, and they've decided that he should go to Mexico to lay low and try to get away from prosecution. But as he is on the train, the marshals have been tipped off. And so, so they, even though he shaved his beard, yeah, going even, into hiding, yeah, they found him. Despite all the best efforts— And so he learns that he's going to be arrested anyway. And so he steps out onto the platform of the train and is just kind of considering what to do and thinking, you know, he could jump off maybe and try to get away, but then thinking that that wouldn't really be a good idea. And then all of a sudden the train lurches and he's thrown off the train anyway, (laughs) despite his intentions and sustains what sound like some pretty painful injuries. Oh, yeah. He broke his nose, gashed his head open. 
But it speaks highly of him that he feels like he doesn't want anyone to be arrested or killed because of him. He does, the saints, yeah. he's been told that there are some saints that are preparing to rescue him and defend him. And he's just thinking, you know, I'm not going to put anybody else through that. We'll, we'll stand up and take it. I wondered, too, George has spent so much time in the East trying to lobby, in, in today's language, to convince or to provide positive accounts of the members of the church. He knows what the Eastern press is going to say. He knows this is not going to play well if there's a raid on the train and he's spirited away. Yeah. And I, I wonder if he wasn't looking at it saying, this is not the time. Yeah, I you know, wonder. You've got to just let me be arrested, let me proceed to jail, I'll do my mm -hmm. time, you know. And he seems to come away with this stoic attitude of, I'll just take what's coming and, and we'll move on together. Wasn't in an earlier chapter where he talked about, we're going to have to stand up and take the pelting? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he does. They had stopped the train because they saw that he was mm -hmm. missing. Mm -hmm. And as he's limping, you know, along the tracks, he sees... The marshals, the marshals coming for him. It shows that they knew they were in an impossible situation. Mm -hmm. Well, Lisa Tate, we thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fun conversation. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. We have a great episode coming up next as well. So we invite you to always tune back in for the next chapter. And we would love to know what you think. You can email us your feedback and comments at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. You can always find the latest on the project at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org where you can see the topics, videos, and more. We thank you for listening. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. See you.